Hi and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress From this world to that which is to come John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory As told by Zachary Bartles Chapter 8 Vignettes Part 1 Formalist on the road called Danger Setting off on the road to his right, Formalist was wishing he'd bet not a mere shilling but a pound sterling that he would arrive first at the other side of Hill Difficulty. Despite his never having been particularly athletic, he was beyond confident in his prospects. Obviously, the foolish man Christian would be last to see the other side, intent as he was on scaling what could easily be circumvented. But his old friend Hypocrisy was likewise ill-suited to win this race, primarily because there was no way to circumvent the hill but to actually circumnavigate it, and Hypocrisy was not known for undertaking even such relatively easy work as this. As youths, the two had once entered, with their classmates, boastful and swagger, in a race from one end of town to the other, not only for bragging rights, but for a considerable sum put up by each boy to be kept by the winner considerable, at least, to such young boys. The rules had stated that one could not ride a horse, mule, or donkey, but had not specified the exact route or any other aspect of the race. Formalist had arrived at the finish line where he was informed that Boastful and Swagger had been neck and neck to the very end, only to come upon hypocrisy already sitting comfortably on the fence waiting for them. When pressed, he swore on his honor and the cornerstone of their local church that he had not broken any rules. It later came out that he'd hired a carriage to take him to the designated endpoint, something that would never cross the mind of the average boy to do. Swagger had doubled up his fists and demanded his money returned, but the other boys held him back from violence, even while hypocrisy happily explained that he had broken no rules, only found a loophole. By hiring a carriage for twice his entrance fee, he had guaranteed that he would be reimbursed twice over by his winnings all while never sitting astride any animal at all. He related this with such obvious satisfaction that Boastful and Swagger never spoke to him again, even as all four of them grew up into men. Formalist, however, admired his fellow's pluck and his creative gaming of the system, and so the two became closer friends than ever. But now, in this contest, that same foible would prove hypocrisy's undoing, as there were certainly no carriages for hire on these narrow roads. And while it was a paltry sum for a grown man to win, Formalist took a secret satisfaction in the fact that winning a shilling from his old friend would mean winning back the ill-gotten gains of that boyhood race. Coming to a fork in the road, Formalist thought back to his training as a boy. Always go right, he'd been taught, which is why he'd taken the road to the right to begin with. Always go right had been a rule among his people for many generations. He smiled to himself as he continued on his way. The ground beneath him was just soft enough to cushion his feet without impeding his steps. The road was flat and growing ever wider as he went, and even the scenery was beautiful, flanked as he was on both sides by gorgeous topiaries, taking the forms of birds, fish, shells, and other pleasant shapes. It wasn't until three or four hours later that he began to worry that he may yet lose this bet. He'd come to two more forks and taken the right branch each time, but those had been a while ago. The road now twisted and turned, but never split. The topiaries continued to delight him, but it was as if he were caught in a hedge maze 
leading him along a complex path which continually turned this way and that and sometimes even doubled back. Before he knew it, darkness was upon him. Given the beautiful, serene setting, Formalist was not frightened, only annoyed at the thought of how smugly his friend would greet him if he won the bet, and the even more odious thought that Christian himself might beat him to the other side of the hill. Hating to do it, for he loved a good botanical sculpture, Formalist broke off some branches until he had a nice, comfortable place to lie down, and there he slept through the night. In the morning, he continued on his way. By noon, he was increasingly sure that he was passing over the same ground for the second time, and by early evening he was certain of it, for he now came upon the place where he had made his bed the night before. Still, Formalist felt no sense of alarm. He remembered an old Vainglorian proverb, All who wander are not lost, and this comforted his heart. But as he continued on his way, the reality sunk in that to follow this path would mean coming again and again to this same place, and he remembered that his father had given him a map to consult should he get lost on his way to Zion, a map which his father had procured from a pilgrim long since dead and gone. Retrieving and unrolling the document, he was less than sure how to read it. There was a key, but Formalist didn't really think to take it at face value. These were symbols, after all, and likely open to wide interpretation. There were also indicators by which he might return to the mouth of the maze and retrace his steps to the foot of the hill, but that seemed stupid to him. He looked around at the pleasant sculpted shrubbery, then thought of the starkness and steepness of the hill, and made up his mind that he would not go back that way. At the bottom of the map, in large, bold letters, read the words, If you find yourself lost, turn back. Turn back immediately and return to the narrow way. That was all well and good, Formalist thought, but obviously not meant for him. His stomach rumbled, and he ate some more of the red berries growing on the bushes. They were sweet, and while they never truly satisfied his appetite, they would sustain him enough to carry on. Formalist stuffed the map back in his bag and resumed wandering through the labyrinth. All thought of receiving his prize, either from hypocrisy or at the Celestial City, now far from his mind. The Sad Case of Little Faith of the Town Sincere they were three brothers, faint heart, guilt, and deep doubt, and they had a habit of following one of those winding roads down from the Broadway gate to where it abutted the narrow way. These wicked men made it a practice, along with many others on the wide road, to come down under the cover of darkness and attack unsuspecting pilgrims. These three brothers tended only to rob the travelers they found, for gain or for sport, but so many had been killed at this place that it was commonly called Dead Man's Lane. It was in the wee hours of the morning that they traveled this road once again and came upon a pilgrim foolishly sleeping just off the path, exactly where Dead Man's Lane met the narrow way. Furthermore, they were pleased to find that he was alone. Guilt hefted his club and made to rush straight for the sleeping man, but Faintheart held him back. Hold, brother. Does this not seem too easy to you? In all the years we've worked this place, have we ever come across a pilgrim sleeping just where we tend to enter the way? What's more, a pilgrim sleeping all alone? With no one to stand watch or help him defend himself against attack? Doesn't this seem odd? No, it doesn't, said Deep Doubt, and I look not a gift horse in the mouth. 
Agreed, said Gilt. Pick apples long enough and a plump one is bound to fall right into your basket eventually. But what if it's a trap? Faintheart asked. Stay back if you want to, but don't think you'll share in the spoils if you do. No, 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 I'm coming. Just take care. The three of them rushed in at the pilgrim, trying to move with stealth but still rousing the man so that by the time they surrounded him, he was standing, shocked and speechless, gaping at each of the brothers in turn. Do you want to die tonight? asked Deep Doubt. The pilgrim shook his head and raised his hands above his face, white as a sheet. He clearly lacked the power to fight or fly. Faintheart growled. Then give us your purse to save your life. The man glanced down at the money bag on his belt, but made no move to retrieve it. Rather, he looked out beyond the robbers as if he expected someone to ride in and rescue him. Never a patient man, Gilt reared back with his club and bludgeoned the pilgrim along the side of the head, right above his ear, sending him down hard to the earth where he lay half-conscious and bleeding profusely. Deep Doubt reached into his purse and pulled out a bag of silver coins, much to the delight of his brothers. Thieves! The pilgrim groaned. Then suddenly arching his back, he shrieked into the darkness, Thieves! Thieves! Gilt silenced him with a kick to the side, but the three robbers were spooked now. Did you hear that? Faintheart asked, his eyes wide in fear. Gilt scoffed. You're such a nervous little... Shh! Deep Doubt held up his hand for silence. I hear it too. So what? Let another pilgrim bring us yet another purse. We can carry a lot more. But what if it's him? Faintheart said, the words catching in his throat. What if it's Mr. Great Grace? We've all heard the tales. Mr. Great Grace of the town of good confidence. He makes short work of our kind. Deep Doubt jingled the bag of coins and said, We got what we came for. Let's away and divide it up. The poor bleeding pilgrim's name was Little Faith, and he had come on pilgrimage from the town Sincere. He lay there for several more hours, not sure whether he would bleed to death on the side of the road or whether some sympathetic traveler would come along and nurse his wounds. Neither thing happened, though, and as the sun brought the mercies of a new day, Little Faith was able to sit up, though his vision was blurred and his head throbbed. He first took stock of his person, gingerly touching the flesh near his gash and realizing that the blood had coagulated over a nasty goose egg. Nothing to sneeze at, but certainly not a mortal wound. Then he inventoried his possessions. The bag of silver had contained almost all of his spending money, which was a terrible loss to Little Faith. However, in the dark, they had apparently missed the other purse tucked into his belt at the hip and the scroll, which he had received from the Shining Ones, at the place of deliverance. And when the brigand clubbed him on the head, by good providence, he had fallen down on top of both the jewels and the scroll, and the rogues had skittered off before discovering either. He looked around to ensure that no other bandits skulked about, and dumped out his remaining possessions on the ground before him. The ransacked bag still contained three silver coins. He also had all of the precious jewels entrusted to him, and, again, the scroll which he was to present at the Celestial Gate. Certainly, it could have been much worse, he thought, but no measure of comfort came from this truth. In fact, he could not be comforted, because any thought of what had happened, what he'd endured, or even what he'd been spared, only made him fume at the wrongs these rogues had wrought. How he had been so well prepared for this trip, but now would have to struggle to make it to the end. 
how there would doubtless be no justice in this case, as he was quite sure he'd be unable to identify these men in the light of day even if they were apprehended. After washing and bandaging his wound and resting for several days, Little Faith resumed his pilgrimage, but with a fraction of his former speed and an even smaller part of his former zeal. Although he had only a little odd money left, he was not wise in how he spent it, and before long it was all gone, and he was reduced to begging, for he knew he could not sell his jewels, and he went on with many a hungry belly for the rest of his pilgrimage. But even apart from this, the remainder of his journey from Dead End Lane on was singularly marked by this one unfortunate event. Little Faith became rather paranoid and sewed both his scroll and his jewels into the lining of his jacket so that no thieves would spot them and set upon him. Without easy access to his scroll, he could not read it for comfort, and even when he occasionally felt moved to touch it through the coat or simply call it to mind, this would dredge up fresh thoughts of his loss, and these thoughts would swallow up all. His journey continued to be a solitary one, not because he came upon no other pilgrims, but because he continually spewed doleful and bitter complaints. If anyone would come alongside and make conversation with him, he would immediately begin to relate how he had been robbed and where and when, who it was that did it, and what he had lost. He would show them his scar and describe the pain and how he hardly escaped with his life. Like a bird tweeting the same irksome song over and over again, he eventually drove away any fellow travelers, save for those who tended toward similarly bitter dispositions. And when he finally came to the celestial gate, he entered only by the skin of his teeth. For when the gatekeeper there asked for his scroll and jewels, he forgot what he had done with them, as he had not even seen them in many years. Only when one of the Shining Ones came and removed his coat and cut a slit in the lining with his sword did he remember, and all at once was filled with shame for having buried his great treasure in his own person under a pile of anger, regret, and cynicism, for having been beaten and robbed by faint heart, guilt, and deep doubt, only to become them. The Taking of Linger After Lust That first stretch of the narrow road, just on the fair side of the wicked gate, is an odd place. There, every pilgrim is filled with joy at having entered in, most brim with exhilaration at having narrowly escaped some desperate attack by Beelzebub from his fortress not far away, and all are unsure what they might find on the as-yet-unfamiliar pilgrim road proper laid out before them. For this reason, the stretch of road between the gate and the place of deliverance is most dangerous and should be crossed over most quickly, save for the interpreter's house, where the old man there, though he looks quite frail, has been known to defend his guests from horrible satanic attacks and has even sent Apollyon himself fleeing back to his own dominion, lion's tail between his legs. But even after losing one's burden at the cross, the danger endures for a time. The newly relieved and newly clothed in the garments of their master still often make easy marks for the agents of the enemy. Case in point, Linger after Lust had finally come to the gate after dawdling near it for more than a fortnight. He had camped off the way on the left-hand side, nearest the broad gate and Beelzebub's garrison, where he had spent a good deal of time hobnobbing with the people on that side. 
This, any seasoned pilgrim will tell you, is particularly inadvisable, and when Linger after lust, or just Linger as he was known to his friends, finally determined to knock on the wicket gate, he was taken aback by the questions the gatekeeper posed. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what would you have? These he answered in the straightforward way. They call me Linger, I come from the town of Fleshly Provision, and I would enter this gate in order to enter the good king's service, to avoid the coming judgment, and to inherit a dwelling place in the celestial city. But then Goodwill asked another question, for it was at his discretion what he should ask each traveler. Why have I seen you milling about by the gate for weeks now, consorting with those who serve Beelzebub? Is there some rule against this? The pilgrim asked with a touch of indignation. Wasn't it the celestial prince himself who commanded us to be sure and count the cost, and who modeled for us a habit of mixing with those who would walk the broad road, even if this prompts the outwardly religious to look down upon them and judge them? And this is truly what you were doing? Goodwill asked. He was quite certain all of this was a cover for a heart that was not fully sold on holy pilgrimage, but he did not press the issue, since pilgrims themselves might not be aware of their every secret motive. And if this man would come in now, put his hand to the plow, and not look back, it would not be right to shut the door on him, especially given the burden on his back, meager as it was. Just uh, one more question, he said. How did you fare against the enemy's final attempt to drag you away or kill you before you reached the gate? The pilgrim shrugged. I was not the victim of any such attack. I wonder why that is... Perhaps I outsmarted the enemy by becoming a bit of a fixture on the boundary of his own land before I came here, so that he didn't realize I was bent on pilgrimage until it was too late. Goodwill opened the gates to this man, but offered a stern warning as he entered. I have admitted men like you before, and a better part of them have fallen away or turned back before they were ever relieved of their burdens. Be sober and alert. You need not worry about me, said Linger. I know how to deal with their kind. But all his boasting notwithstanding, this man took nearly three weeks to cover the ground between the gate and the cross. No sooner had he begun to walk the narrow path than he discovered thick vines spilling over the wall on the left-hand side and some very sweet fruit on them. And so he walked along the wall, not on the narrow way itself, thinking the only thing that really mattered was whether he made progress in the right direction. He traveled slowly, of course, as the ground there was neither paved nor well-trodden, but he had never been one to hurry, and considered it a virtue that he ambled along and took full advantage of this tasty fruit. Of course, he saw many pilgrims walk right past him at a much quicker pace, both Christian and faithful among them, but he just laughed to himself at these frantic, fanatical souls who did not know how to enjoy life. As evening approached that first day, Linger After Lust heard laughter and chatter from the other side of the wall, the voices of young women. Now, you should be aware that Linger had been known as a bit of a ladies' man back home in fleshly provision, and he knew deep down that this was the reason for his continually gravitating toward the broad road before finally entering in here. And this whole day, he had seen only a few dozen women walking the narrow way, and they were all quite dour and grave-looking, dressed plain and modestly, carrying heavy, filthy burdens upon their backs. And so, using the sturdy vines growing over the wall as a ladder, Linger climbed up high enough as to make him a bit nervous and looked over the wall. There he saw a gathering of beautiful women, adorned with gold, their hair braided and faces painted. 
There, Linger After Lust lingered for a long time, watching them, wishing he was on the other side where he could make their acquaintance, make them laugh at his own wit, and find some excuse to here and there brush against them, and perhaps more. Thus, Linger's progress was slowed all the more, stretching out the hour's walk to the interpreter's house over many days. His practice was to sleep late, then travel a dozen steps or so before peering over the wall, yearning for whatever he saw. Young men drinking to excess, men and women cavorting, or people doing absolutely nothing, lying idle and lifting their heads only to laugh at some coarse joke offered up by one of their fellows. When a week had passed, Linger awoke one day feeling particularly enlivened to make some real progress along the way, and he traveled at a good clip, still up against the wall separating the King's Land from Beelzebub's, until he thought he saw the interpreter's house up ahead on the right. But then he stopped to rest and, out of habit, climbed back up on the vines and found himself looking down at a place where women went to bathe, out in the open as shame was a rare commodity on the other side of the wall. And so he camped in that spot for many days. Each morning he would rise and break his fast with some of the fruit plucked from the vines on the wall, intent on finally going the last few paces of his journey to the house ahead and the deliverance beyond. But first, just one last peek over the wall. And then, as day turned to night, he would settle into what had become a very comfortable bed of moss and vines and tell himself that tomorrow was the day that he would leave this place behind, return to the center of the path, and walk the straight and narrow, only to repeat this process yet again the next day. It was three weeks to the day after he'd passed through the gate, as he was standing on the vines and calling down to a damsel on the other side of the wall, when he felt a hand grip him around the ankle and yank him roughly back. He lost his footing, fell hard against the wall, became momentarily tangled up in the vines, and finally landed on his back, where the soft ground he'd prepared undoubtedly saved him from a broken bone or two. He noticed as he rolled onto his back that his burden had shrunk to the point of being almost unnoticeable. A flash of rage was replaced by confusion and then shame as he looked up to see Goodwill standing above him, his face stern. "'I'm not supposed to leave the gate.' he said. Well, then why have you? Because I have seen you tarrying here, just as you tarried on the other side of the gate, only longer yet and with no evidence of a pilgrim's heart. Linger after lust rose to his feet, standing nine inches taller than the gatekeeper, but nowhere near as stout. Why don't you mind the gate, hmm? he said. Mind your own business. This is my business, Goodwill said. And if you will not go without delay to the door of the interpreter's house, I will drag you back to the wicket gate and put you out by force. Linger glanced back at the vines on the wall, for the first time seeing how withered and sick they looked, and how the fruit drooped down heavy like a blister ready to pop, and he felt a sense of guilt overtake him. He nodded. I am sorry for lingering here. It is my nature, but that is exactly what I need to be cured of. And I am grateful to you for pulling me down from that wall. Before long, I doubtless would have fallen, probably to the other side. Goodwill grabbed him by the shoulders and spun him around to face toward the east. I think you'd better go right now, he said, whacking a hand against his burden, which had returned now to its former girth. I am gone, he said. God bless you, Goodwill, I will not forget this. Linger ran the last fifty yards and just about tore the knocker off the door of the interpreter's house. 
There, he was admitted and shown quite a few wonders, which touched him deeply. There was a man in an iron cage, the sight of whom struck terror into his heart. There was a bird eating a centipede and many others. Finally, he was taken to a great dining hall, where a man who was dying of thirst continually ate salty foods and licked a block of pure salt, looking to slake his thirst. This, the interpreter told him, was the state of any man trying to find satisfaction in the passions of the flesh. Linger wept and thanked his host profusely for the lesson. He dawdled not between the house and the place of deliverance, where he was relieved of his burden and his tattered rags, washed and clothed in the garments of the king, and given a new name, Godly Affections. As he descended that holy hill, he was filled with hope and life and a great desire to make progress each and every day. But then he came upon a place where the wall to his left was again visible, and there it was so short that he could see an orchard on the other side, and even some branches of those trees hanging over into this land. The fruit was pleasing to his eye and looked good for food, and he felt the pull of the old self inside of him to go that way and taste that fruit. But as he took his third or fourth step off the path, he heard a man shout, Ow! What is this? I'm trying to sleep here. Looking down, he saw three men and a woman, all curled up cozily on the ground, their legs shackled. Sleeping? The pilgrim asked. Why? It's not even noon. The others stirred and regarded him with no little annoyance. Why do you care? One of them asked. Oh, be nice, the young woman said. My name is Dull. I've just made the acquaintance of these fellows a short time ago and haven't quite been able to tame their manners. <laughs> One of them laughed and swatted at her playfully. I apologize, he said. My name is Simple. These are Sloth and Presumption and, you know, Dull. What is your name? Linger after lust, he said, without thinking. Well, Mr. Linger, you ask why we're sleeping. I might ask why you're not. It's a beautiful day, sunny but with a cool breeze, a day made for relaxing and enjoying. I'm not sleeping, the pilgrim replied, because I am on pilgrimage to the celestial city. I've already turned aside more than once, and I've determined not to do it again. This brought a laugh from all four of them lying on the ground. I used to say the same thing, said Sloth, until I realized that the lord of that city is a hard taskmaster, the sort of man I have no interest in serving. And then I spoke with these two men who enlightened me as to the state of your so-called good land, which is not half as good as you think it will be. And of course, both the road and the city itself are full of meddlesome, troublesome, busybodies. I suppose he'll fit right in, Dole said with a laugh. I highly doubt all of that. Have you not heard of the bread of God and the comforts he provides for his children and the righteous travel and labors of pilgrims on the road? Husks, mere fancies, things to no purpose. Lie down here just a little while and see if you don't change your mind, Presumption said. And so, linger after lust, first sat for a while and talked with these idle fools and then leaned against a tree trunk and finally lay down alongside them. As he drifted off to sleep, he was thinking that he'd be sure to get up before dark and continue along the road, but maybe first he'd have another look over that wall. Spoil 5 in Fair Speech 
Each night, the pews were moved off to the sides of the pleasant chapel in the town of Fair Speech and a long table brought in. There, a group of men whiled away the hours, playing cards well into the night. Considering this to be a form of religious fellowship, the parson, a Mr. Two-Tongues, provided refreshments purchased with funds from the offering box. Play was by invitation only. Tonight, seven men were gathered for their favorite game, Spoil Five. Ace of hearts, Mr. Moneylove announced, flipping the card triumphantly atop the others. And I take the trick, the third in a row. Lord Fairspeech, from whose ancestors the town took its name, clapped half-heartedly and said, Good game. Take your winnings, Moneylove. That is, unless you want to, uh, you know. I'm thinking, said Mr. Moneylove. Of what? Going for five? Lord Timeserver sneered. Seems foolish. Foolish how? After four spoiled rounds, you've got 28 coins in that pot. Yours for the taking. Why risk it all for another mm, six coppers? The Reverend Two-Tongues laughed. Have you met this man? He'd sell his mother for six coppers. Lord Fairspeech clucked. That doesn't sound like Fairspeech. The parson laughed again. <laughs> I meant nothing of it. I admire your single-mindedness, Mr. Moneylove. I think you know that. I do. And I've decided. I'll be jinking indeed. Keep your cards and loosen your purses, gentlemen. Two more tricks and I'll be that much richer. My dear mamma still safe in her bed. <laughs> he giggled and added, Lord Fairspeech, if you would. My pleasure, but I'm all out of trump. He dropped a five of clubs onto the table. Say, uh, Reverend, where is your nephew tonight, Mr. Byens? Yes, Lord Turnabout said, following suit with a two of clubs. I wouldn't expect him to miss his last game for who knows how long. The parson took his turn and answered, I believe he's collecting some debts. He'll join us later, I'm sure, just preparing for his big trip. They leave tomorrow after service. Play came around again to Mr. Moneylove, who tossed a four of clubs contemptuously onto the table, drained his drink, and bit down his ire with a frosty, Well played, Lord Turnabout. You've spoiled the round, haven't you? Turnabout is fair play, the other man laughed. Fair play and fair speech, hmm? He adjusted his wig and antied another copper into the pot. The others did the same, and Lord Fairspeech gathered the cards and dealt five to each man in pairs and triplets. The door opened and a young man breezed in, several bags of coins jingling in his hands. Mr. Moneylove looked with longing at the heavy purses. Mr. Byens, Lord Turnabout called. Glad you could join us. That's not my name, the young man replied, doffing his hat and approaching the game. Oh, it seems the pot is fat. I suppose I'll have to wait until someone wins this sum before you deal me in. You may have my spot, Lord Timeserver said. Need to be in church in the morning, as you know, I attend three services. Not sure why, Mr. Byans said, assuming the man's seat and examining his cards. If you really want to take five tricks for five, spiritually speaking, you should do what Moneylove and I are doing. It's the ultimate trump card for Judgment Day. No, thank you, Lord Time Server said. I enjoy my own bed, my own cook, and my upholstered chairs. Three churches will have to be enough. Farewell, gentlemen. And with that, he left. Lord Fairspeech flipped the top card of the deck to reveal a queen of hearts, drawing cheers and groans oh, from around yes. the table. Oh, come on, Mr. Two Tongues led with a ten of hearts. Mr. Facing both ways studied his hand and mused. Hmm, I have privilege to renege. I think I will. No, no, I won't. 
He began to play a jack of hearts, then drew it back. Or maybe I will, or... Make up your mind, Mr. Byens commanded, and the little man released his card. So, Byens, Mr. Anything said, will you be back here for church tomorrow morning? Oh, look, I've taken the trick. What a nice surprise. That's not my name, and I haven't decided. The parson shot him a sharp look and said, Don't think I won't report you on account of your being my nephew. Twelve pence fine for missing church. Aye, but I won't be here to pay, will I? At any rate, aren't I attending church right now? Lord Timeserver travels to three towns to attend three churches, but I'm here almost every night. Church is church as I see it. He played another card absentmindedly. Lord Fairspeech collected the trick and said, It's not quite a proper church service, I suppose, but I do appreciate these games. Our last parson wouldn't hear of it. You two men are too young to remember, but Mr. Godly Desire despised our wasting every night playing cards and drinking to excess, much less our doing it here in the chapel. And keeping a mistress, Lord Turnabout said, wouldn't shut up about that. Not to speak ill of anyone, the reverend put in, but that may be why your Mr. Holy Desires was run out of town. Live and let live, I say. If you don't miss church, the magistrate won't fine you. Why should the good Lord? I am, of course, expected to condemn it all from the pulpit, but at this table we can be a bit more realistic. Oh, and another trick for Lord Fairspeech. Speaking of mistresses, Mr. Anything said, by ends, my good man, how are you going to manage on your journey without the beautiful Lady Folly? I'll take care of her for you, Lord Turnabout said with a laugh. What is this journey everyone keeps talking about? Mr. Facing Both Ways asked. I've missed something here, the parson answered. Byens and Money Love are leaving on a religious pilgrimage tomorrow, along with some other young men, Mr. Save All and Mr. Hold the World, headed to the Celestial City. I'm quite proud of them for undertaking such an important rite at such a young age. In fact, I might even fail to notice if you miss the service tomorrow. You get some extra sleep, men. You'll need it. A pilgrimage? Facing both ways scoffed. Why would you go and do a silly thing like that? I'd never do it. Or, I mean, maybe I'd do it, but I, I don't know. I, it, it, it doesn't sound like Mr. Byens knows. Call me Byens one more time and see what happens. That doesn't sound like fair speech. Indeed. I'll just say this. My pilgrimage is my own affair. Besides, there's plenty in it for us. There had better be, Mr. Moneylove said. Well, look at that. I've won the trick. Another round spoiled. Hypocrisy on the road called destruction. Hypocrisy grinned as the wide, level path curved ever so slightly to the left alongside a beautiful orchard of heavy, ripe apples. He plucked one from a low-hanging branch and bit into it, thinking of his old friend Formalist, always following his silly rules and proverbs. He laughed out loud and took another bite. Those proverbs had sent Formalist in the other direction, and the sign designating this the road to destruction had kept Christian from an easy journey. But hypocrisy knew better. Such a label was the perfect way to protect a pleasant path like this from being overrun by travelers, its fruit picked clean and the ground packed hard. Those who dared defy this warning would be rewarded with leisurely travel and all sorts of comforts. If anyone knew the value of presenting things in a particular way for one's own advantage, 
it was hypocrisy. He'd practically invented the practice. After two hours of walking, the road led him into a wide open field full of dark mountains, and doubt began to cloud his good humor. But hypocrisy pushed on, and soon found himself walking alongside a high stone wall. It looked similar enough to the one he and Formalist had tumbled over, but he could not be certain whether it was the same one. He followed the road along the high wall until darkness was falling and made camp beneath a pleasant willow tree, where he not only found a good night's sleep, but woke to find several silver coins scattered about, shining in the morning sun. He laughed as he gathered them and could not wait to show these to Christian and Formalist. Why, even if he lost their little bet, he would come out ahead. This delighted but did not surprise the man. Things generally worked out for hypocrisy. He resumed the road, which he walked for several days, until he came upon a large earthwork rising up to the top of the wall itself. There the road terminated, with a sign that warned, no re-entry. Hypocrisy thought for a moment and decided that he'd had enough of this pilgrimage and he'd seen enough, enough to convince the other residents of Vainglory that he had seen it through to the end. A combination of stories he'd heard, his own meager experiences along the road, and his ever-reliable imagination would prove sufficient. Besides, his supply of food was nearing its end. He had to arrive somewhere, and soon. Looking down to the ground beneath, on the other side of the wall, he realized it was not much higher than the freefall he and Formalist had undertaken a few days earlier. Going limp, he dropped nearly twenty feet, perfectly executing the tuck-and-roll as he landed. He sat, dazed, for a few minutes before gathering himself up, shaking off the dust, and carrying on along the path. Within a few hours, Hypocrisy found himself at a fork in the road. A sign pointing to the left indicated 50 miles to the City of Destruction. Another sign pointing the other way promised to take him home to Vainglory. He thought again of Formalist and all of his rules and chuckled to himself as he turned right. Always go right, they'd been taught as children, and hypocrisy happily obliged when it served his purpose. It was the dinner hour when he arrived back in his hometown, and he went right to his favorite tavern, where a crowd quickly formed around him, excitedly taking in his tales of the narrow way, the beauty and majesty of the celestial city, and, for good measure, the story of formalist giving up and turning aside when things got hard. His boyhood chum, Swagger, challenged him a bit, questioning how such an epic journey could be accomplished in less than a fortnight. But Hypocrisy had prepared himself for this, and related the shortcuts he'd taken, the wisdom and cunning with which he had outsmarted giants and hobgoblins, and finally, how he had traded his father's prized amulet for the fastest horse he'd ever seen, which brought him with unbelievable speed to the shining holy city. They all ate it up. Hypocrisy's cup was never empty that night, as his admirers jostled for the honor of buying him a drink. Even Boastful and Swagger clapped him on the back and raised glass after glass to his health and good fortune, and those men hadn't spoken to him since they were lads. It was very late, when the crowd had thinned considerably, that the local parson, the Reverend Mr. License of the United Church of Ease, invited Hypocrisy to join him at a corner table. That's quite a story he said, eyes gleaming. His stomach full and his head swimming, Hypocrisy nodded and emptied yet another tankard. Have you considered what you will do with this newfound fame and wisdom? Hypocrisy shrugged. 
The reverend leaned closer and asked, Have you considered church work? When his companion balked, he added, For men like us, it's a bit more lucrative than you might think. Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress. Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to leave us an honest review. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's Classic Manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com. For more audio experiences of my fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and Silva. Gut. Check. Breath.